Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Brainy Bunch. I am this episode's host, Nikki Caccioni. I hope you all enjoyed the last couple of segments on lobotomies, magnificently done by Nico, and on microbiomes by Hannah. There was some super fascinating stuff covered in each of those. In keeping with Nico's trend of going back in our little podcast time machine, I'll be taking you way back in time to the Southeastern Asia region by discussing Buddhism. You may ask, Nikki, why would you be discussing Buddhism? Like this type of Buddhism? Well, kind of. But, Nikki, I thought this was a podcast about neuroscience, not religions or philosophies. Well, 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 my inquisitive listeners. I'll explain how this all relates in more detail as we move through the next few minutes together. But first, I think it'd be nice if you understood a bit about why I care a lot about this topic of Buddhism and the brain, and how I came to research it while being a business student at the George Washington University. So, As a member of our wonderful University Honors Program on campus, I had the privilege to take a class titled Origins and Evolution of Modern Thought, where we dissected a lot of philosophical texts, something I had never done before. As someone who wasn't well-versed in the topic, and also was fairly turned off by the idea of Western philosophy incorporating a lot of religious texts, I turned quickly to my professor at the time's primary field of study, which was Buddhism. Later that year, He helped me write my term paper on the exact topic I'll be talking to you all about today, Buddhism and its relation to cognitive neuroscience. I was inspired to research this topic by a specific series of events shown in class, which have become popular across mainstream media outlets. That is, the act of extremist meditators in Tibet, who are primarily a sect of very devout Buddhists, setting themselves on fire in protest and not even flinching at the pain. I've always thought one of the most painful ways to die would be burning to death, and the science behind that definitely backs me up. So I asked my professor how they could withstand so much pain, and he led me in the direction of the neuroscientific research that was being done with regards to Buddhism and the brain. So now, here we are. In today's podcast, we will be discussing three main points. First, I feel it's necessary to make sure everyone is on the same page regarding the history and some of the main tenets of Buddhist philosophy. Second, I'll shift to a brief overview of how neuroscience has intertwined with Buddhism throughout history. And then finally, I'll dive a bit deeper and use one of Buddhism's main tenets, the theory of anatta, or non-self, to show how some of their ancient theories have been proven at least partially correct by recent neuroscientific advancements. Section 1. Beginner's Buddhism So, to start with some beginner's Buddhism, Buddhism was founded by a man named Siddhartha Gautama late in the 6th century BCE, somewhere in the Himalayan foothills. He became known to his disciples as the Buddha, which translates from Pali to the Awakened One and from Sanskrit to the Enlightened One. He is said to have attained enlightenment after denouncing his worldly possessions, which, as a prince in Nepal, he had a lot of. After he began to spread his teachings, the religion grew around India initially, and later made its way around other parts of Asia. A couple of the main philosophies and teachings of Buddhism are 
the Four Noble Truths, and the Eightfold Path. The Four Noble Truths state that there is suffering in life, the cause of suffering is desire, ending desire means ending suffering, and following a controlled and moderate lifestyle will end desire, and therefore end suffering, which is the ultimate goal of Buddhism that will eventually lead to enlightenment. The Eightfold Path highlights the ways to live life with ethical conduct, mental discipline, and while achieving wisdom in mind. Its eight parts are right views, which are the Four Noble Truths, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood or occupation, right endeavor, right mindfulness, which translates to total concentration and activity, and then right concentration or meditation. While this covers the introduction to the historical context surrounding the origins of Buddhism, after the Buddha died, his followers ended up having a major split due to the differences in interpretations of his teachings. This resulted in two large groups forming, Hinayana, directly translating to the lesser vehicle, and Mahayana, which directly translates to the greater vehicle. Hinayana Buddhists are found in most Southeastern Asian countries, but primarily in Sri Lanka. They are the minority in terms of number population of Buddhists, and more closely follow the explicit teachings of the Buddha in terms of meditative practices. However, they are vehemently in favor of the doctrine of no-self, which we will discuss in depth later. Mahayana Buddhists, the more popular sect, are primarily found in Korea, China, and Tibet. They believe in a more progressive Buddhism, stating that Siddhartha Gautama was only one incarnation of Buddhist teachings, and that Buddhism can easily be applied to the life of a modern-day civilian. Regardless of the sect of Buddhism, however, which each of them obviously have different ways of achieving the same goal, the end goal does indeed remain the same, and it is to alleviate samsara, or suffering, and achieve nirvana, which is enlightenment. Section 2. Neuroscience and how it relates. Neuroscience, a term not broadly used until the latter half of the 20th century, has been of interest to philosophers and scientists for centuries at least, but was not really formally thought of as its own discipline until the early 1900s. Since the increasing popularity of the field of study began, multiple distinct branches of neuroscience began to form. But the one that was most closely tied with Buddhist thought is that of cognitive neuroscience, which looks at how the brain forms and controls our thoughts and the neural factors that underlie those processes. In cognitive neuroscience, one of the first Buddhist-related breakthroughs that was widely studied was that of practiced meditators. According to Rick Hansen in his article, New Neuroscience and the Path of Awakening, the mental activity of meditation changes your brain in numerous ways, including adding billions of synaptic connections and thus a measurable thickening of brain tissues in the regions handling control of attention and sensory awareness. It increases serotonin, the neurotransmitter that helps regulate mood and sleep, it changes your brain waves depending on whether you are doing a concentration or a mindfulness meditation. Along that same train of thought, one of the most prominent neuroscientists to lead the charge in proving the benefits of meditation neuroscientifically is Richard Davidson. One of the reasons he is so renowned in the science world is due to his relationship with the Dalai Lama. Through this friendship, he was given access to study the brains of devout monastic Buddhists, who rarely leave their monasteries, 
and found that their neural activity could be sustained and controlled by the use of meditation. Specifically, he saw clearly visible gamma rays, which are normally hard to detect, in the brain scans of practiced Buddhist meditators. The monks' ability to control and sustain the presence of gamma rays shows that they can, at least much more successfully than the average human, choose when to create a thought and continue to think about it, rather than the common human brain, which is sporadic. A final, much more recent tie between the two disciplines of neuroscience and Buddhism comes from the 2017 conversation, which was then translated and turned into a book between Matthew Ricard and Wolf Singer. Matthew Ricard started his career as a molecular biologist, but gave up his seemingly normal and successful life to become a devout Buddhist monk. Wolf Singer, on the other hand, is a very well-known neuroscientist. In the book, they discuss the main tenets of Buddhist philosophy and the current neuroscientific viewpoints on what the Buddha preached. With conversations like this between Buddhists and neuroscientists, it seems as though the opportunities for new discoveries are endless. Section 3. The Self As promised, our last section of the podcast will cover, in my opinion, one of the most interesting ties between Buddhism and modern neuroscience, which is the understanding of the self in humans. To begin, I'd like to read a quote from Geshe Tashi Chering, who is a leader of a large Buddhist monastery in India. He says, We instinctively feel that we are more than just the combination of mental and physical aggregates. We are certain that there is something there that is a self-supporting identity, a self that is self-sufficient, substantial reality. Just as Sering insinuates, many in Western philosophical and religious traditions preached and still believe today that the self is its own entity, either within the body or even in some instances on its own metaphysical plane. However, early Buddhist theory always maintained that the soul, or self, is what they referred to as empty, or devoid of intrinsic nature. This means that it would not be its own entity. This assumption was directly tied to one of the main tenets of Buddhism, that all life is impermanent, which is a part of the tradition called the three marks of existence. So, acknowledging that, the Buddha asked, how could there be a permanent entity of self? He posited that the self is something, like all other things, that must always be changing. Although for ages this idea was completely written off from Western thought, neuroscientists who took notice of the theory started to develop findings that seemed to concur with the Buddha's teaching. Rick Hansen, who was mentioned earlier in this episode, states that researchers have found that the activities of self are scattered throughout the brain, constructed from multiple subsystems and activated by many prior causes. There is no coherent, stable, independent self looking out through your eyes. In a neurological sense, self is truly empty. For many Westerners, science is the benchmark authority for what is true, and its harmony with Buddhism reduces the hindrance of doubt. Moreover, another study from 2015 states, self-processing in the brain is not instantiated in a particular region or network but rather extends to a broad range of fluctuating neural processes that do not appear to be self-specific. All of these particular findings of the study exemplify concretely from brain scans that our ideas of self don't come from one part of the brain, but rather are compounded from a multitude of causal factors that are dependent on the context of our environment, ultimately meaning 
that our sense of self is in fact viable, but is constantly changing and impermanent as the Buddha had suggested thousands of years ago. Knowing all of this, is it not possible that Buddhism could have been correct about other parts of the human experience? I think there are endless bounds to what science, especially neuroscience as a rapidly growing field, is able to tell us, and I think that diving deeper into other theories from the Buddha's teachings could lead to even more fascinating discoveries regarding how we experience the world as humans. That will be all for me this episode. Be sure to continue tuning in to the Brainy Bunch podcast, as next episode, we will have Samiha Rao talking about yoga and its correlation to neuroscience.